You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananon, Jawbreaker, Kruger, Loining, M.D., Charles, Logan, The Knight of Dampier, Commodore Obvious, Pablo, Toves, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Kenway, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, Redbeard, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Don, Jesse, Lexi, Patrick, and Stephen. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. When we were discussing the Irish theater of the Nine Years' War, I didn't talk much about the tactics they used, or even the greater strategic moves. How kings and dukes and generals chose to prosecute their war doesn't matter, but why they did so does. However, today we are going to look a little bit more at the tactical moves in our theater, and the strategic moves on a much smaller scale. If you've ever seen the Mel Gibson movie The Patriot, they make a big deal about adopting Native American battle tactics. There is some historical basis for that, but as usual, Mel Gibson took the real history and manipulated the facts to his own cinematic ends. I mean, it's not like after 200 years in North America and a bunch of wars fought against and alongside Native Americans, the English hadn't already figured that out. Today we're going to be looking at one of those wars, the American theater of the Nine Years' War, and the dawn of one of the largest conflicts in early American colonial history. This is episode 173, King William's War. When last we left New England, It was shortly after the outbreak of the Nine Years' War, but we haven't really done a circuit of the colonial landscape for quite some time. You know, historically speaking, what did the colonies look like in 1689? Well, by that point it looked similar, although not exactly the same, to what it would look like about a hundred years later at the Revolution. We should note the Restoration Colonies, established by Charles II upon the Stuart Restoration, The big two there were Pennsylvania, named after Admiral Sir William Penn, and the Carolina Colony. Now, neither is going to concern us today, but I do want to make a note of them. 
They were both major economic players, and especially Carolina is going to concern us moving forward. The colonial charters in both cases were given to close allies of Charles II. Carolina especially enjoyed a certain royal preference. The capital of Carolina, Charlestown, was, in addition to being named after Charles, occasionally the largest city in the colonies. Not always, in fact, not even most of the time. Boston and New York, Jamestown, they were all big cities. But there were a lot of slaves in Carolina, and many of them in Charlestown itself. The southern colonies aren't really going to be impacted by King William's War, but we should keep Carolina and Georgia in the back of our minds. The other, new, major colony of note was New York. We've talked about New York a lot already. It was giving Boston a run for its money. The real point of interest there are the other new colonies in New York's sphere of influence. New Jersey, Delaware, parts of Connecticut, what they would call the middle colonies. In that respect, in that there were southern colonies, middle colonies, and New England, the map looked a lot like it would on the eve of revolution. But three colonies concern us today. New York, New Hampshire, and the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Those three all had borders that were, in 1689, still in flux. The most contentious region was the province of Maine, which belonged to Massachusetts. I say belonged, but I should amend that. Massachusetts claimed the province of Maine, but so did the French. And France is key to our story today, so let's take a quick jaunt through New France. There were three French colonies in North America at the time, although their borders were even less defined than the English colonies. Louisiana existed, for example, but it was still being explored at the time. The largest colony of the three was called Canada. The province of Canada was giant, nothing compared to modern-day Canada, but huge nonetheless. However, much like the Louisiana Territory, Canada was lightly populated by the French. Most of the inhabitants of Canada were Cree people. The French lived primarily in two settlements, Quebec and Mount Royal, or Montreal. Both were large, populous fort cities. Now, you might be wondering, what about Toronto? Well, hold on to that, we're getting there. The province of Canada claimed parts of two different English colonies the very far north of New Hampshire, and the western reaches of New York. Now, both of those regions will see a good bit of fighting, but this war that we're concerned with today broke out between Massachusetts and the French province of Acadia. Today, Acadia is a peninsula in Nova Scotia with a ton of Atlantic coastline, almost an island, but not quite. At the time, though, it was one of the most important strategic locations in the entire Northwestern Hemisphere, arguably the most important on all the Atlantic coast. The province of Acadia included the modern-day Acadian Peninsula, as well as Prince Edward Island, Newfoundland, and most of Maine. If you take a look at a map of that region, you'll note that all of those territories are necessary to control the entrance to the St. Lawrence River and access to the Great Lakes region. This was of major economic importance to the French Empire. The Acadian Peninsula, the part of the peninsula that connects with the rest of mainland Canada, 
was home to a fort city called Port Royal. Or, I suppose, Port Royal. In its strategic value, I think of it kind of as an Istanbul or Constantinople. It was placed in a similar fashion. On a very narrow strip of land where the peninsula met the rest of mainland Canada. Port Royal was settled by the French way back in 1613. It was pretty quickly taken over by the Scottish, who controlled it for a number of years, and then it was in English hands for a while, but by 1689 it was back in the hands of the French. Now, Port Royal will see some naval action in the upcoming war, but more than that it was a base for land action in southern Acadia, also known as Maine. Before that, though, we should introduce the two indigenous peoples who will play a role in this war. I keep calling it the American Theater of the Nine Years' War, and it was, but really, the Nine Years' War just gave the European powers in America an opportunity to fight openly, rather than their long-running proxy war fought through their Indian allies. There was the Iroquois Confederacy, an alliance that was distinct from the Iroquois peoples. It consisted of five nations that were allied with the English. Their enemies, the Wabanaki Confederacy, were an Algonquin confederation that was allied with the French. Now, these two groups had been fighting since before European contact. The Europeans, though, got involved as soon as they arrived, and they called this conflict between the Iroquois and the Wabanaki the Beaver Wars. Now, that war picked up pace significantly in 1681. When England took control of New Netherland, it created yet another border between France and England, in a region that already had a ton of friction between the native tribes there. In 1681, the French authorized the sale of weapons to the Wabanaki people, and the governor of French Canada, the Comte de Fontenac, negotiated an official alliance with the Wabanaki. This reignited the proxy war. While the Wabanaki and the Iroquois had been fighting for a long time, this brought the European powers back into the fold. I'll give an example of how that war could go. In 1686, the Iroquois Confederation made a big move. There was a large migration of people from all of the different nations of the Confederacy, though mostly Mohawk and Seneca people, that marched deep into Wabanaki territory. They established a settlement there. Now, this was a migration. Thousands of people, families, women, children, old people, they moved in and settled down on that piece of land. They built a village, they planted crops, all of that. But on the other hand, this was also a military invasion. Those who made that march were warriors. They had to be. Because the piece of land they chose was not empty. The Wabanaki had a pretty significant trading post there. It's a perfect place to build one. It's the site of modern-day Toronto. This was an immensely important location in the beaver trade, and I can't overstate what a big deal the beaver trade was. You know how pirates down south in the West Indies were always hoping for silver or, better yet, gold, maybe jewels. More often, though, they found sugar, which was fine, but sometimes they would happen across a haul of indigo or nutmeg, maybe. Not as convenient as hard money, but worth almost as much. Beaver pelts, similar to indigo or nutmeg, fall into that same category. 
Usually you're going to find codfish, mostly just codfish, but sometimes you'll find a bale of beaver skin. Now the French had this market mostly cornered, thanks to their Wabanaki allies and their deeply important trading posts, such as Toronto. This move by the Iroquois in 1686 was a major coup. In retaliation, though, the French invaded western New York and attacked the Seneca people who were living there. Now, the English and the French both took part in this war, active military participation, but they rarely attacked each other. They usually only attacked indigenous settlements. What they were doing was playing this complex game of plausible deniability. But then, of course, there is a thick layer of racist icing on the whole cake. Whenever a group of native peoples would invade and engage in burning and looting and torture and rape and murder, they were painted as savages, heathens, the worst kind of barbarians. But then, when the Europeans did exactly the same thing, usually on a much larger scale, they were only doing it against heathenous barbarians. It was a preemptive strike, obviously. What this did was allow the French and English to fight by proxy even when they were at peace. But everyone knew this couldn't last. A real fight had to be coming. In that same year, 1686, the French built three churches in the province of Maine. They were Catholic missions built at three separate Algonquin villages. Now, they were genuine religious institutions. The priests there were real priests. They were there to minister to the local peoples. But they were on the frontier. Naturally, as frontier settlements, you have to have a few muskets, you know, for protection. But then you look closer. There were usually maybe as many as a couple dozen Frenchmen there, but they would have hundreds of muskets and pikes and powder and shot and supplies. These were religious institutions, but they also served as forward bases. Not forts filled with French troops, but supply depots for Indian allies and a small cadre of French commanders. Now keep in mind that in 1686, the French and the English were at peace. I mean, they were allies back then. Even still, though, the French built these missions. Now don't think it's all French aggression here. The English were building their own forward bases, and they were fully manned forts. The closest to those three missions is a place we've seen before, just down the coast. You will, of course, remember Fort Loyal at Falmouth, Maine. It's the same fort we paid a visit to alongside Thomas Pound in 1689, when his ship's doctor seduced away 20 or 30 of the militiamen there, and then he laughed in the commander's face. Here in 1686, though, that fort was already a problem. It was a, a point of contention. The whole province of Maine was a problem, though. It was claimed by both powers, but to the French, Fort Loyal looked aggressive. It, it was aggressive. Hence, three Catholic missions led by Catholic priests with hundreds of muskets each. In April of 1688, before the outbreak of the war in Europe, war was already breaking out in America. Governor Edmund Andros, who would be out as governor in only a couple of months, he led the men of Fort Loyal to the southernmost of those Catholic missions. That mission was on the Kennebec River, 
The English called it Norwichwick, and everyone else called it Kinnebec. Kinnebec was home to one Father Jean-Vincent de Abadie de Saint-Castin. He was the leader of the mission there. He was also a celebrated military commander back in France. Andros, though, attacked and plundered his mission and killed some of the Algonquins and carried off the spoils, but really this isn't about money. This is about sending a message. The English drove that message home when they marched on to a nearby Indian village that was home to all the women of the tribe. Then they turned around and went back to Fort Loyal. Now, if you read the English records, they'll tell you that it is at this point that hostilities commenced. All the fault of the French, of course. Father Castan attacked an English settlement inland from Fort Loyal. He had a dozen of his own Frenchmen with him and 250 Anaki warriors, members of the Wabanaki Confederacy. I say he had a dozen of his own men, but really those Anaki warriors were his men as well. Jean Castan was a war chief to the Anaki people. What follows is called the Northeast Coast Campaign. Father Castan and his army of Anaki warriors marched on every English settlement along the coast and defiled them. It's more of the same. Murder, fire, torture, rape, complete desolation. And that sounds horrible, and it is horrible, but it's really no different from what Andros had just done a couple of months earlier. This was the norm. Now, we can assume that the fighting would have continued on in that fashion for some time, but everything changed in late 1688 when William invaded England and Louis invaded the Rhineland. England and France were officially at war, and in America, the gloves came off. As soon as the weather warmed in spring of 1689, the French and their Wabanaki forces turned up the heat. They invaded northern New Hampshire, captured somewhere around 30 women and children, and killed 40 men. Not Iroquois, but English citizens. This was an open act of warfare. The rescue party that the English sent out to bring back the captives and bury the dead was never heard from again, nor were those women and children. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Wheel! 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. It's here I'd like to talk about the tactics used in this war. Early modern warfare is often characterized as a bunch of guys standing in rows across fields firing muskets at one another. And that's not exactly inaccurate, but it's not really fair either. That doesn't take into account siegecraft or cavalry or artillery, not to mention, you know, naval warfare. But in America, at the time, things were different. First of all, the forces were tiny. 500 soldiers was a big force, and that was almost never European soldiers, it was almost always Indian allies. Now you might be able to talk a couple hundred Europeans into standing across a field and firing muskets at each other, but good luck talking Mohawk warriors into that. The tactics utilized by those Indian allies were stealth and surprise and hit-and-run raids. They look a lot like pirate tactics. Or, you know, Robin Hood. It's how you fight when you have a small force of people who will be needed to grow food or sail your ship when all this is over. It also helps when you don't have some duke who doesn't care if you live or die telling you how to fight. The colonists in America picked up on that pretty quickly, as did the pirates who came from this region, and we see them in full effect in this theater of war. Everyone was using these tactics on both sides. But the English credit one particular Rhode Island commander for implementing them. His name was Benjamin Church. Church was one of the first generation of American-born Englishmen. He was born in Plymouth, the son of Mayflower passengers. He served in the colonial militia his entire life, Early on, he fought alongside Native American warriors and learned about that style of warfare. He knew, in fact, a lot more about this style of combat than traditional European warfare. When this conflict began, the Council of the Plymouth Colony promoted him to major and sent him out at the head of a force of 250 English soldiers. Now, this was a direct response to Thomas Pound's actions at Fort Loyal. When Thomas Pound seduced away those soldiers on the 8th of August, the people of Massachusetts realized they just didn't have the soldiers to properly man that fort. So they wrote the Providence Colony and a few others to ask them for help. But Providence responded with a good number of militiamen and Benjamin Church. On the 20th of September, about a week after Church and his men arrived, scouts showed up with word that an attack on the fort was imminent. Major Church ordered all of the non-military settlers in the region into Fort Loyal, behind their walls, and then he prepared his men for battle. Now, most of these soldiers were in a defensive formation behind earthen fortifications, But then he dispatched two units into nearby thickets on either side of the clearing at which this fighting would take place. These are Native American tactics we have seen implemented by many a pirate in the past. 
This is what Mel Gibson was talking about in The Patriot, but here we see it a full century before the revolution. The force that arrived, come dawn, was made up entirely of Wabanaki warriors. It was smaller than Major Church's 250, but big enough to pose a threat. The fight that followed proved harder than it should have been, especially given Major Church's advantages. One of the groups that had been sent out to ambush the invaders was spotted. A group of Wabanaki scouts flanked these ambushers, sneaked up behind them, and slit their throats. The English soldiers who expected that flank to be secure turned their backs on the tree line. When the main body of Wabanaki rushed the barricades, those scouts opened fire on the English. Of course, the English still had that other unit in the other tree line. The Wabanaki found themselves caught in the crossfire, and soon enough they pulled back from the field. We don't have Wabanaki casualty numbers, but 21 Englishmen were killed in that engagement. The people of Falmouth were safe. Behind the walls of Fort Loyal, they all lived on to see another day. But then Major Church did something odd. He left. A few days after his victory, maybe as much as a couple of weeks, he sailed to Boston. It looks like he received orders to return, but we don't have copies of those orders, if in fact they did exist, for reasons that will soon become clear. Here's what happened from the French point of view. Father Jean Castan heard word that Thomas Pound had sailed up, seduced away those soldiers, and left Fort Loyal weak. So, seeing this opportunity, he sent out a relatively small unit of Wabanaki tribesmen to attack the fort. But, upon their attack, they found 250 Englishmen waiting there to repel their forces. 250 soldiers is a sizable force for that region at that time. Enough that it freaked out the French. That's an invasion force. That's enough soldiers to potentially take all three of those French missions. That's enough to take Maine. In the face of this existential threat, Father Castan, a Wabanaki war chief, gathered a force of maybe 250 or even 300 Wabanaki warriors. Then he sent word to his top lieutenant, Joseph Francois, who raised his own force of two or three hundred. The records of Joseph Francois, at least his early life, are somewhat sparse, but we should note him. He was captured by Iroquois, allied to the English, when he was a young boy. He learned their language and learned to live among them. But he escaped the Iroquois only to live with the Wabanaki for a couple of years, learning their language and living among them before, as a young teenager, finally returning home. While the English may give Major Church all the credit for introducing Native American tactics into this war, Joseph Francois deserves just as much, if not more. In May of 1690, he joined up with Father Castan to form a force of four or five or even six hundred soldiers. That's a large force, certainly enough to crush the 250 Englishmen who were absolutely, definitely still at Fort Loyal, right? I wonder if, when all this is over, if Father Castan turned to whomever was in charge of that first Wabanaki raid, standing in front of a literal pile of bodies, 
and asked him exactly where those 250 men were. I would love to tell you about the Battle of Fort Loyal, you know, a hard-bitten fight between two powerful adversaries, but I can't. Instead, I'm going to have to tell you about the Falmouth Massacre. The people of Falmouth, when they realized that this raid was incoming, did make it inside the walls. They did take up guns, and they did try to defend themselves. But it was in vain. Maybe fifty or sixty civilians with twenty or thirty militiamen, versus maybe as many as six hundred warriors. Every person inside Fort Loyal was either killed or captured that day. A mountain of bodies was piled before the gates of Fort Loyal. When Major Church arrived a few weeks later, it took him several days with all of his troops working overtime to bury all of them. Most of the women and children were carted away, but a few of the men were taken with them. One of those men managed to escape and tell the tales of what he experienced there. The men from Fort Loyal were stripped naked and forced to dance. Sure, that's humiliating, but whenever one of those men began to lag, he was beaten with clubs, one of them with an axe. All the while, all while enduring this suffering, the women and girls were being divided among the victors of that day's battle. When those men, bruised and bloodied, were unable to dance or even to stand, they were finally allowed to rest. They were tied up and given a sparse amount of water and no food. All throughout the night, they were forced to listen to the victorious soldiers enjoying their spoils. Come dawn, once again, they were forced to dance. Two of the men managed to escape, but one of them delirious from pain and hunger, fell back into Wabanaki hands. Only one eventually made it to Boston to tell this tale. Now, the question of blame here has been tossed around after this massacre quite a bit. Certainly, Major Church, or whoever ordered him to leave Fort Loyal, deserves a large amount of blame, but who you choose to blame has a lot to do with your prejudices. Was this massacre irrefutable proof that the French were violent dogs below contempt? Or was it a sign that the Indian people, even the allies of the English, were, you know, the savage barbarians that they were so often painted as? The answer, of course, is neither. What happened here is something that we see all throughout history. We see it especially when people of different backgrounds come into conflict. Remember that march north that Governor Andros led only a few months earlier? Remember how, after defeating the Wabanaki warriors, he led his men to that nearby village to enjoy the spoils of victory? I don't want to go into detail here. The thought of it makes me sick to my stomach, but this was a force of... 300 soldiers or more, marching on a village of women and children with far fewer inhabitants than that. Were you one of those defeated Wabanaki warriors, the likelihood that your wife and daughters were pregnant after the 
the tensions of the English, if they survived, that is, the likelihood is high. That's something that you would have to live with. That's something that your wife and daughters would have to live with. And then, this Frenchman, this white war chief, gives you the opportunity for revenge. When the French commanders realized that there were not, in fact, 250 soldiers defending the walls, they did try to hold the Wabanaki back. They failed, but they didn't do so because they were good people. There are no good people in this story. But we have to look at this from a realpolitik point of view. The English had a total mastery of the sea, and this kind of brutality would elicit a response from them. It did elicit a response from them. I don't think it's a spoiler to point out that today, Maine is a state in the United States of America, not a Canadian province. However, the English Navy was busy at the moment. They didn't have the ships to spare to attack a few hundred Wabanaki tribesmen and a couple of dozen Frenchmen. So what would any good English colonial governor do when he needs the navy, but the navy isn't coming? He issues commissions, or letters of reprisal, or letters of mark, or whatever legal cover he needs to raise a citizen navy of privateers. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Anyone who has left us a rating or a review wherever you listen to the show. Everybody who has donated through the website. And everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family, online or in real life. All of you make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as usual, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight